Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Lego Movie 2. A lifetime has passed since the horrific events of Taco Tuesday. Our lives descended into chaos. This new life has toughened and hardened us all. Two copies, please. One black, one with just a touch of cream and 25 sugars. Well, toughen most of us. Mm. I wake up in the morning. Why do we? Good morning. For the day. Hello, cyborgs. What a morning. Good morning, sewer babies. Emmett, you gotta stop pretending everything is awesome. It isn't. Yeah, I get it. And that's why I've cultivated a totally hard edged side that's super tough and. Look! Look! A shooting star! Make a wish! <gasps> What is it up to? I don't know, but that beat is pretty fresh. Uh-oh. Bring me your fiercest leader. This guy is the special. This guy was a fierce warrior. Okay, well, technically, I did the warrior stuff. So, so you fought and masterbuilt and kicked butt, and then the hapless male was the leader. He, uh, well... Lucy! Emmett! Hang on to your fronds, Planny. We're going to save Lucy and all of the other people who were captured. You mind if I save your life? Not at all. Who are you? The name's Rex Danger Vest. Galaxy defending archaeologist. Cowboy and raptor trainer. <laughs> you don't want to go anywhere near the Sistar system. It's ruled by an alien queen. Only the toughest are going to get out of there alive. Who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> yes, you are. I'm a queen, whatever I would not be. I'm getting super evil vibes here. I could change my form to something else if this makes you uncomfortable. Hey, guys. No, go back. The horse was much more palatable. We hadn't planned on doing this one so soon, but there are a couple of important aspects that I just wanted to talk about in a way that the maximum number of listeners could hear with some very good people. So with us once again are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Still doing awesome. And Karen Nagisa. It's Chainsaw Dave now. And Debbie Morse. Spaceship! Both of Sequentially Yours. And for the first time on the main show, though if you're a Patreon listener, you'll have heard him talking about Ocean's 8 with us on the quick reviews. It's independent film journalist Toby Jungius. My only regret is not trademarking no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go very light on the monologues this time because the meatiest aspects of this movie could be covered very handily in a way that gives us all less of weight to talk about before or after. So we're going to go with bullet points instead. I know sometimes I do that uh, and that usually tends to be in films where I'm like, I noticed this about the film and it might not be uh, noticed by everyone. I always wanted to get it into the exact right words now, but th in this case it's the the core of the film and I don't just want to hoof it all in one go I was asked a few weeks ago when How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World came out if it was perhaps the greatest animated trilogy of our age 
the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy. The only trio that occurred to me which could oppose it was Toy Story. Then a day later, I saw the Lego Movie 2, and if you slide the Lego Batman movie in between these, in the eyes of many, you subvert the very idea of a trilogy. Is Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, and Iron Man 3 a trilogy? Strictly speaking, no, but there is obviously a similar cross-character aspect and a unifying thematic element regarding two sons of Howard Stark, separated by decades, both trying to prove themselves amid traumatizing conflict. We are in an era where the idea of a trilogy, capital T, has been smashed anyway, with fourth films edging in as early as 1997's Alien Resurrection, which coined the term quadrilogy, and most of the best actual trilogies being one great film and then two sequels written as a result of the success of the first. We don't really have trilogies anymore because studios want to keep making money through spin-offs and cinematic universes, and sometimes with the right artistic vision, that commercial endeavour can pay off on all fronts, as with Deadpool, Logan, Planet of the Apes, and sometimes, with the likes of Pirates of the Caribbean, it can become an exercise in spinning out profits over delivering great movies. What interests me is thematic trilogies, and we've actually ended up preparing one for this first half of 2019, as The Lego Movie 2 is the final part of a trilogy that we will be going backwards on, with upcoming episodes on its obvious predecessors, The Matrix and Revenge of the Nerds. But more on that when we reach those other two shows. My first question to the group requires everyone to cast their minds back five years to early 2014, in the autumn of the Obama administration. And he had pretty much forgotten that time a few years ago in 2011 when he had made fun of Donald Trump for two straight minutes at a White House dinner while Trump was sat in the room, forced to smile obligingly. Someone should get to the bottom of that. And I know just the guy to do it. Donald Trump is here tonight. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, He's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? Of course, Obama had forgotten. There could be no consequences for that dryly delivered takedown of a fake billionaire. Disney was still working on their newly acquired Star Wars license. The last Marvel film was Thor The Dark World. The desolation of Smaug had just failed to make everyone happy that there was still a third Hobbit film coming. Digital Gonzo had just ended and been upgraded to Digital Drift with the new, now permanent co-host of Sharon Shaw. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Everyone was doing the Harlem Shake and the thrift store. The minions of Despicable Me Too were making fans of animated family fair so very happy. Millennials were all guzzling down avocado toast, unaware of the dire financial consequences and washing it down with cans of ice-cold surge. TV was buzzing with adulation for Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. Louis C.K. was pulling out the big guns on the comedy scene. And everyone was just thrilled that Brian Singer would be returning to revitalize the X-Men series, which had been flagging at an all-time low with the X-Men First Class and The Wolverine since he left. Bill Cosby was set to release his new stand-up special on Netflix. T.J. Miller was working on his hilarious roles in How to Train Your Dragon 2 and Transformers 4 
4 and Big Hero 6, and Harvey Weinstein was looking forward to his 62nd birthday. David Bowie was preparing to launch his 24th studio album the next day, and Prince was gearing up to release Plectrum Electrum. Alan Rickman was directing, co-writing and starring in A Little Chaos, and Anton Yelchin was busy making six films in a year as he waited to play Chekhov a third time, along with a hopeful Leonard Nimoy. On the day of release of the Lego movie at the Regency Theatre California on February 1st, 2014, Robin Williams had six months left in him, Maya Angelou less than four, Philip Seymour Hoffman just over five hours. In Britain, the notoriously racist UKIP party were pushing hard for a referendum within the next few years for a decisive, organised, definitely not motivated by tax-dodging wealthy types exit from the common market of Europe. What was I saying? Oh, that's right. We were all sitting on a barrel that had been slowly filling up with gunpowder, but we were too entranced with the pretty sparklers we were holding to notice. Anyway, the Lego movie came out and surprised a lot of us by not being a cynical cash grab with humour by way of the video game, but it was more than just the absence of bad jokes and craven clawing at our wallets that made us like it. Rather than giving this to the first person who can clear their throat, I want you all to think of the topic as a hot potato. Voice the most significant aspect which comes to the front of your mind, then pass it on to the next person. What was special about the first Lego movie, and why would that make it hard to follow? It was self-aware without being cynical. Pass it on. It had heart. Pass it on. It gave us Will Ferrell not acting like a moron. It could have been so much worse than it was. They're, they put too much effort into it, almost. It was specifically about its brand, but in a way that was almost detrimental to telling you to go out and buy things to do with its brand. Hmm. The event for difficult things to pitch, basing the third act around an entire shift in the way you viewed all the events up to that point. Hmm. It shifted the rea- the reality of the film. You can't do that twice. Hmm. It's like having a finale that was that point when in The Matrix, which I have a feeling this will not be the only time we bring it up during this podcast, mm-hmm. taking the finale and basing it around that point when Neo takes the pill and and that hit us, that hit us really hard. But now we have to try and say, okay, how do we go from here? Mm. And I think what um, a lot of you guys are getting at with, with where we're, it feels like we're running around around an elephant and poking it with sticks at this point, just trying to bring it down. A mammoth, sorry. It ended up being so much about what it was about that it's very hard to go, right, okay, so just draw it back. Now let's have some fun with these Lego dudes. And I just yeah. forget about that whole what it's about, you know, just for for a bit. And honestly, it feels to that end like... The Lego Batman not having a real-world parallel and the Lego Ninjago movie uh, being seen by a lot fewer people and definitely having no uh, uh, real-world parallel aside from the fact that it was a little story being told to a kid by Jackie Chan gave us that distance that allowed us to go, okay, well, maybe we just walk into this one and it's not so much about what's going on on the outside. Although from the first trailer, I was like, I can see where they might be going with this one. I noticed that several of the gags and scenarios from the first movie seem to be recycled here, which made the moment-to-moment humour of this one relative to the first Lego movie and indeed the Lego Batman movie less punchy. To me, at least, humour is obviously one of the most subjective things. However, there is a narrative reason why this might actually be acceptable, which is that Finn is replaying an adventure he's had before... 
and he's just doing the same thing again. A, you know, a, a variation on a theme. Yeah. A, a kind of a critique on Finn's slightly limited toolbox, maybe. I think there is an element of him repeating the things that he did fairly recently in his own childhood, but he is moving towards having his own loop and having his own container the same way that his father does and he's less creative and more uh replicating stuff he's seen in movies there's more you Absolutely. definitely get an idea that finn's been watching a lot of uh, uh netflix in the past uh, five years <laughs> maybe, maybe even a lot of batman maybe that's what lego batman's about mm. <laughs> and that also then brings in an element of is part of his frustration at bianca fairly deeply buried envy that her imagination is still elastic Woof. okay mm-hmm. which would make uh. sense since her creations are definitely a lot more i guess you could say creative than his at this point they original. are yeah they are original and new in a way that his are not yeah they have abstractions to them that his never had really his statue of liberty is the iconography of planet of the apes a 50 year old movie mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. And just as the original Lego movie was the tacit endorsement of the remix culture, Finn's state of arrested development and inability to remain fluid and creative could be interpreted as a critique on repetitious entertainment design based on throwing together bits of what has worked before. I wake up in the morning, wide awake for the day, and I say, what a morning, it's all okay. Queen Whatever Wannabe break the mold for villains because that is effectively what she's positioned as in this movie. Well, major spoiler, she ain't one. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. I think the the main mold breaker, I suppose, is that the thing du jour is to present your villain as somebody whose ideology makes sense but whose methods are deeply deeply flawed mm-hmm. and so a killmonger she's, yeah a thanos exactly mm-hmm. she's kind of the other way around <laughs> yeah. she's, so she's, her ideology makes no sense she's and her methods those, well, are yeah. deeply deeply perfect she's doing nice <laughs> things for everybody you never see her do anything that is actually bad or unpleasant to anyone after that, you're going to get your gifts but everybody <laughs> makes assumptions about her ideology well, she does have an incredibly creepy villain song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So she's just not great at communicating. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> she's my favourite character in the uh, the new movie. There's a whole bunch of uh, really great ones, but um, I, I bought both versions of her uh, for, um, for for building through this weekend. We got the the one with the banana that's like a little horse and. Uh, <laughs> The, 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 there's like a, a, a gorgeous set that's got six bags of different shaped Legos. Lego, sorry. And you can make her into 15 different shapes. Five models, three variations, and that's just off the instructions. When you start thinking about combining those collections, the combinations become near infinite. 
that is a mind-bogglingly fluid character. She's an assertive female, which is fantastic, you know, for a villain and for a, a hero. But she's also self-made and constantly reconfiguring and adapting as a characteristic makes her incredibly watchable. And Tiffany Haddish is funny as hell, which makes her a joy to witness. And there's the overt symbolism of a young woman who can be whatever I want to be. It is shameful how long it took for me to work that wordplay out. I thought it was whatever, wannabe, because the double meaning of her name is quite dismissive and offensive if you're not prepared to get to know her. But I got it. Oh no, are we in a musical? Uh, Hello friends, my name is Queen Whatever I Wanna Be. Don't worry, I'm totally not one of those evil queens you've read about in fairy tales or seen in the movies. And there's no reason at all to be suspicious of me. (laughs) I won't lie, it's actually very suspicious that you're leading with this. I'm so not a villain, I have zero evil plans. No ulterior motives, just wanna help where I can. I wanna shower you with gifts, cause I'm selfless and sweet. So there's no reason at all to be suspicious of Queen Whatever. Out. She's cool, not evil. What about me? You and a kitty. What's the most glitter you can imagine? A lot. Times up by infinity. And Batman. Don't even try it, lady. I don't need anything. Oh, I know. That's why I'm going to give you half of everything. Oh, uh, like everything, everything? Everything, everything. She's rad. This chick gets me. Here are some other adjectives people use to describe me. Unduplicitous, unmalicious, unconniving, unnasty. You're clearly deciding un to words that describe you. Who, me? I'm queen whatever I wanna be. I've never tricked people into trusting me by hiding my true personality so I can use it to accomplish my evil deeds. Does that be evil? And that's so not me. I never cheat, I never bribe, I never scheme, I never lie And that wasn't a lie when I said just now that I never lie Cause I never lie And I never laugh when children cry And I never poison enemies of mine And I never cry when I'm alone at night Cause I'm not said I love 
So she constantly shifts and can become whatever Bianca is feeling at that exact moment. If you've encountered Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy or the movie The Golden Compass, this should be familiar ground for you. Yeah. She's, mm-hmm. she's her demon. She is her demon, yeah. 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 And, and honestly, that the, the idea that she can be expressive of anything that Bianca is feeling in any given moment, when you are, a, I mean, I can't speak for being a tween boy, because I've never been one, but as a tween girl, you feel quite a lot of things in the space of an hour. It can, it can turn on a dime. Your emotions are constantly flowing backwards and forwards. So having the opportunity to express how you're feeling in a matter of minutes and then break it down and change it into something else i can see that being incredibly freeing for her yeah yes yes as as someone who was also far longer ago than i would like a teenage girl that's absolutely yes that is that is true who are you whoa the name's rex Rex Danger Vest, galaxy defending archaeologist, cowboy, raptor trainer who likes building furniture, buzzing heads, and having chiseled features previously hidden under baby fat. Whoa! Ah, enemy ship! That's a negative. That fat boy is my ship. Built it myself out of spare pieces. Let me show you around. Hey, you broke my ship. Listen, kid, you can build anything, but there ain't nothing you can't break. (laughs) I don't get it. So let's talk about Wanabi's opposite in this film. Uh, During Act 2, how does the character of Rex come off specifically before you understand him? He's a Chris Chris Pratt parody, and I think that you sort of get that even before you recognise the voice by just him hanging around a bunch of raptors and holding his hands up. By the second act, you could start to feel that something's off. You want to be on his side because he seems to be on the right side, but you're starting to get little hints here and there, and it's almost subconscious, and just credit to Lord Miller for their writing on that score. I knew something was off from the jump, Simply because I instantly, like, the minute he started talking, I'm like, wait a minute, that's also Chris Pratt. Hmm. Like, it it was never, it never, it was all, I'm like, okay, something, something's going on, something isn't right here, somehow, somewhere. I don't know what, obviously, yet, but it, it, I never, I was always questioning everything he said and did, because I'm like, there, there's some kind of subterfuge going on. Hmm. So it wasn't a... It wasn't a surprise for me. So I thought the angle they were going to play was that Emmett uh, saw this guy as being someone that he could really try to be like. Like at the end of the first Lego movie, well, around this stage in the first Lego movie, they met Lego Batman. And I was like, right, so Wildstyle's been feeding him this. Why can't you change? Why can't you be more grown up? So he's just going to look at Rex and go, well, this is the guy I can be more like. So they took a parody of, of Chris Pratt and just you know made him super hyper macho. And they, they obviously leaned into that, but then they went several layers further. But that's that was around the time in the movie I was like, yeah, it's kind of just like the first movie again. I'm, I'm hoping they go further with it. And they so did. I'm just uh-huh. really, really pleased that it went beyond that, that straightforward layer of... I mean, it, it, to the point where if you go back and watch Toy Story 3, it's like, well, these toys are sad to see Andy go off to college and they have to say goodbye to him. So I guess they're kind of like the parents. But really, they're also the toys. 
there's no way near enough meta in these masterpiece Pixar's now because uh, uh, you got Lord and Miller coming in with their. Yeah, but think about outside the box. Now outside of that box. Now outside of that box. I can't. Too many boxes. <laughs> My initial interpretation was that it was a nod to more modern Lego in comparison to what Emmett is, which is part of a really old-style construction set. Mm. And the the using the same voice was a way of pointing out that these figures are the same, it's just how we interpret them, and then overlaying that with, okay, Finn's at an age where everyone's going to be telling him to grow up and that he's got to be more adult about things, and so this is his response to take this character who is, who's been modernised... But has then had that this person can be anything removed from them because he's very specific stylistically. He's almost poochy, like he's been focus grouped to be the <laughs> yeah. this action man type guy. Um, yeah. Action man is the GI Joe in the UK, and he mm-hmm. um, in the nineties they gave him an overhaul. So he's you know he's like this snowboarder, also super spy. And can you extreme him by about twenty five percent? Yeah, they yeah. they extremed him by that much. And honestly, if you put a gun, a Lego gun to my head uh, in the early stages of the marketing for uh, uh, Lego Movie Two, I would have said, yeah, I remember the Rex Danger Vest line. I was remembering, I think it's called Alpha Team. It's uh, from the early two thousands. It was like a series of spy Lego, and it seems like they're parodying that. There's something that smacks very authentically uh, about. About, uh, the Lego movies that they're very aware of the product that they're selling and the history behind it there's a lot of people who really love and you know have uh, understand their the the lineage of what they're dealing with and poking fun at it is always great I, I spotted another couple of fabuland dudes at the uh, the wedding mm. and Susan's from the mm. Lego friends set of course yeah anyone want to talk uh, briefly about what Lego friends are because a lot of the boys in the audience won't know Lego friends were a were, were? I don't know if they still make them I'm assuming they do yeah. but they were the spear point of the we need to market Lego to girls as well mm-hmm. and they created the the bricks the same albeit that they're in a different color range but the figures are not the same as minifigures. They are taller and they're more shaped and they have boobs, albeit very small ones, and they are a little bit more like little Playmobil figures, I suppose. Interestingly, their uh, uh, legs are completely locked in place. So mm-hmm. there's a point where uh, General Mayhem approaches the bunker and her legs just go whoop, whoop, whoop. And like, she kind of hops along rather than moving her <laughs> legs in a left-right yeah. structure. But I, I took the the part where Queen, whatever want to be, initially emerges in her unicorn form and Susan is sitting on her back. And the assumption is clearly meant to be that Susan is the empress. Mm-hmm. And yes. then the, the unicorn speaks and you realise that that's not the case. And I took that as a kind of a nod to the the Friends series being not misjudged exactly but they I think they went slightly down the wrong path with it in the sense that it was how do we specifically market to girls rather than how do we stop specifically marketing to boys mm. because Lego is not gendered if you look at Lego wow. adverts from the 70s, people pick them up as examples of how toy marketing did not used to be gendered. And it only started being so at the, the turn of the 80s. 
With Ronald Reagan lifting broadcast restrictions in the 80s, that opened the floodgates for toy manufacturers to create TV shows that would effectively be marketing campaigns. So you got Hasbro and Mattel, these two industry giants, both going down very gendered roads to bring boys to the action figure aisle of Toys R Us and girls to the pink aisle. These were decisions made to ensure that they covered various market sectors that would otherwise go to their competitors. If we don't have a girls line, Mattel will rule the roost with Barbie. And because of that, they reinforced for decades the gender divides. And now there's no more Toys R Us. There's definitely a bittersweetness to that release. But something you picked up on, Alex, when uh, we were looking for Lego sets on the on Amazon after we'd seen the film, was that the marketing for them was showing in every single image what appeared to be a brother and a sister playing together. With now, the obviously, same set. with the same set of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Now, obviously, that's a, a big part of picking up the theme of the film, but specifically, that's about you know this is not. Boys go over and play here, and girls go over and play here, which is just reinforcing cootie culture, frankly, mm. which is something that desperately needs breaking down. Cootie culture, mm-hmm. we're yeah, just about to talk about that now. Needs but, to die. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, it's cootie the cootie culture uh, is my least favorite YouTuber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cootie pie. Okay. <laughs> so the next question. This is the big one, and then, like this is like the whole ball of wax. Everything's going to come spilling out as a result of this. We're going to go quick fire, I would imagine, through the rest of the questions because everything leads on from this. After the reveal, when we begin to finally fathom his true nature, can we on this podcast possibly unpack the dense conglomeration of modern neuroses and meta commentary that Rex Dangervest represents? Go for your lives. Not if you want to stick to the hour. <laughs> well, we're already nearly at that hour, so let's, let's just go. When the movie started and the, the early parts of the theme showed, I was like, ah, I know why. You know, I, I, I see why Alex liked this. And then when that happened, I was like, oh, I see why Alex wanted to record on this right away. <laughs> yeah. This is why this is an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> and it it very much being the fact that, oh, these are totally, I'll just say it, these are totally the the whiny Star Wars fanboys, the, the Ghostbusters fanboys. Um insert you know myriad video games that are not aimed at me and they're forcing diversity and it's not adult enough it's not dark and gritty and that's not batman (laughs) all all that kind of stuff rex as a narrative device is something that robs the target audience of the distance of having a other to project the image of toxic masculinity being bad upon it's easy to look at the first lego movie and it's very very well done um sort of message of you're appropriating childhood nostalgia and weaponizing it to the detriment of your own youth and it's speaking to the parents in the audience that it knows are there this movie is specifically talking to the people who grew up for five years after seeing the first lego movie and speaks directly to them and warns them, this is what you could turn into, not so much just the fact that you could be kind of a, a stuffy old fuddy-duddy like your parents, but you could become something that is even worse and more toxic than the bad guy from the previous film. And that is 
that's something that I actually appreciated. This is a different movie, but that's something I appreciated about Wreck-It Ralph 2 is it took away the safe distance of the Gaston, for lack of a better word, of like, oh, Gaston, that's toxic masculinity, that other thing, not the thing that you are. Whereas this says, no, the quote unquote hero of the film could be this. And that's literally the worst thing. For me, as a character, Dangervest is specifically speaking to Generation Rex. <laughs> you said that on the way. I was like, I Generation Rex. <laughs> that sounds yeah. awesome. But <laughs> if, you, if you take the first film as being, okay, you guys, you're thin in this particular analogy, and your father it has gated you off from the things that you want to be involved in. Gamer gated you off. Yeah. And now mm. that generation in terms of the age of the kids in this film, Will Farrell is not the age of their fathers. These are our kids. These are the these are the children that are their their parents are our age, as in Mine and Alex, I know we're a little bit older than the rest of you and slightly ahead of us. So the cautionary tale there for for them is you did it. You you are really in danger of becoming that person and then abandoning the situation because he spends the entire film notably absent mm. and not getting involved. And... Specifically, he has stopped telling Finn, don't do this. He's given Finn absolute freedom. Absolutely. And he, because he says at the end of the first movie, now you're allowed to play in here. You know who else is allowed to play down here? Your sister. He has seeded that and then kind of dropped the reins on it somewhat. Mm. I got a dark laugh out of seeing uh, President Business at the start. In a time of crisis, mm-hmm. go off to play go golf. Go golf, yes. Yeah. How can you predict that? Uh, Me too. Uh, one of my later questions is, uh, but I think Sharon's invoked it, so there's no point coming coming to it later, is, is what coding can you read on the subject of generational conflict here? But I will at least touch upon the fact that president business equating to responsibility shedding baby boomers they get off so lightly in this film. They really do. There's no blame really leveled at them. It's it's honestly it is a kick in the balls to Generation X and Millennials. I've got one foot in Millennial, one foot in Gen X. Uh, it, it's a kick in the balls to people going, "Well, it's the Boomers' fault. They left us with this world." It's like, yeah, okay. And you're here now. You're about to be in charge. They're about to die. What is the world now? Mm. And mm. don't get me wrong. I feel for the, the Gen X, um, what's the word? Internal Being crisis, overlooked. I suppose. Yeah. In, in They're the, the middle child. That, yeah. But there's, there's yeah. this sort of feeling of the, the, the boomer generation saying, look at what we achieved isn't it magnificent? Here are the goalposts. Now, if you work as hard as we did, you can achieve all of that too. And then the goalposts kind of got moved. And then they got moved again. And then they got moved again. And eventually the response to this is Bart Simpson's can't win, don't try, got it. And that's what they did. They abdicated any responsibility to the next generation. And I'm not saying that this is all of Generation X, obviously. But a good portion of it when 
fine and became incredibly cynical and incredibly spiky and defensive about their situation and their lack of ability to achieve. It's not their fault that they couldn't achieve. The goalposts kept being moved, but it is their fault how they respond to that being able, unable to achieve. I've read it as allegorical of uh, generational conflict, which is um, that Finn seems like a confused, angry, defensive intersection between Gen X and millennials. And Bianca seems like an intersection between weary millennials and optimistic iGen. She's very much at a crossroads and it feels like this was a a turning point for her Mm. and it, it could have gone horribly. I think bottom line, if you want to overlay it with reality, the generational lines are much more blurred these mm. days yeah. because yeah. the the days when people had kids in their 20s are not entirely behind us. Obviously, it still happens. Mm. But you get this 20-year this bracket that's supposed to span a generation. You can get two people who are in the same generation having their kids 20 years apart. Yeah. We're all very much in this technological revolution together and the story playing out is of damage being caused through conflict of people of very comparable age. Mm, Don't be dicks to each other. Yeah, well, the bottom line is this. The future is coming. You can sit in your living room and bitch about it all you want, but it's coming. Okay. Mm, But no, you'd be brainwashed if you try to embrace or adapt to change it's clearly the faults with them back to rex danger vest much of his trauma comes from having been left alone which is really what finn is doing when he is rejecting his uh, sister's attempts to play with him we never see him with friends or with anything else he spends his time in the basement by himself stewing his own juices without any sort of outside influence coming in to try to brighten him up so in a way rex is showing the sort of dangers of this solitary play and that specifically in this case lego is not necessarily about building for yourself and creating your own little world it's a collective activity because his dad saw him playing with the lego said yes that's okay and then went off and left him with it yeah and played golf and didn't stay and play with him. Left him under the dryer. The one very, like, specific to the way that master builders react to the world at- attribute slash special ability that Rex brings is he can only destroy things. The The fact that he has been left alone and left feeling emotionally abandoned, the only way he can express that is eventually through destruction. As in the real world, Bianca causes damage to the natural order and destroys parts of the city. Finn doubles down on that and tears apart his father's creation, leaving a wasteland populated with minifigures who have given up trying to rebuild. And because Finn's reactions to his sister are both emotionally destructive to himself and to her, that's something that's at first presented as a whoa, look at you break down that wall, eh? thing. But 
uh, obviously by the t- the second time it's happened it's framed as being just this massive tragedy that Emmett who has been all about building bridges between people and building things for people he is forced to destroy things that people had worked hard to create and that's what Finn is in danger of doing so we've already said the boy is uh, 13 and a half now which is a very tender age he wants to be grown up and he's clearly you know the subtext is he's seen a lot of other kids at school acting uh, far more grown up than him and so he tries too hard and overcompensates uh, he tries to leave childish things behind and he becomes something twisted and he's disgusted with his own prior innocence whilst telling himself he's fine whilst telling himself that he's awake and that uh, other people are the ones who've got their heads in the clouds um the uh, the the reference to the matrix was not just like a little ah yeah matrix will almost like he took the red pill yeah uh, I'm, I'm gonna save all of that to unpack for the matrix oh. show but Boy, have I got a lot to say about The Matrix now. We've been promising this for years, and it's just been percolating and percolating, and we're going to do a show which we wouldn't have done in 2013. You can trace a lot of this resentment all the way back to the very beginning, which I missed the first time. I've seen this film twice. I came in the first time because I got delayed at the box office, uh, and it was already in Fury Road Town, and he was getting a coffee. So I missed the invasion of Duplo. I missed him giving the heart to... We are from the planet Duplo, and we are here to destroy you. Yeah, I missed, obviously, the the, the physical makeup of Queen whatever. And uh, I missed what happened to that heart. He made her a heart of his Lego, and she took it. It's represented here by the, uh, the, the the Duplo aliens just eating it up and turning, smashing it into bits. But this is a little child going, ah, hot, I'll just take it apart. And he just told her it can be anything you want. And she's taking him at his word. And it was just, it was offered in this really sweet, you know, little boy reaching out to his sister way. And it's just, it's not an act of maliciousness in any way on her part. She's just excited to be able to play with it. And there's an immediate parallel there with girls wanting to finally play with boys' toys, boys' art, boys' entertainment, and boys interpreting that interest as a threat that the thing they love will be stolen from them. They stole it from us. It can be anything you want, take care of it, and she takes it. And that Lego clearly disappears up into her room and he never sees it again. And he must have stewed on that. And it's uh-huh. such a little thing. But it made for a rivalry which began to build between the two of them. Brendan was saying that he's effectively becoming a worse villain than Lord Business. He's repeating the sins of his father, which is to squat on the dragon gold horde like Thorin. His father said, okay, I'm off to play golf. This whole basement is now effectively under your jurisdiction. Bye. There's nothing bad that can come of this. You're playing with your sister. Bye. I abdicate all responsibility. Bye. I'll see you in in a few years. Bye. And Finn was just overwhelmed with how much Lego he now had access to that suddenly became his. I will not part with a single toy. Not one piece of it. 
in his story, in his adventure, the Lego Movie 1, the man upstairs merely dismissed him and tried to shoo him away from the Lego collection, wanting to undo his hodgepodge creations and restore perfect order in his own domain with the craggle. He wanted to glue everything in place in his search for perfect order. It wasn't so much, this is my Lego, it was... Although there, there was that. That's there in the signs. It's there it's, in the signs, yeah. but it's not so much, mm. now, I've spent so much money on this. It's more kind of, the Lego needs to be built like this. It's in the instructions. Also, it's gentler and it's played for humour. Yeah. It's not yeah. done in quite such a, a devastating way, which this movie made me cry because of the subtext of what's going on. He was, yeah, so he was just like, you've turned this Lego into these weird creations, although I'm somewhat impressed by it. Uh, he, he just wanted to try and restore order. And the, the subtext of uh, the original Lego movies, younger generations repurposing the properties of the old to create something new and fresh. And hey, you know what, big publishers, maybe don't squat on your IPs like a dragon and punish everybody who uses a film clip in something that they create on YouTube. How about allow people to make crazy new things themselves with mm. the, the wonderful things that you have made? Everyone will celebrate the things you have made. You've done fantastic work, which we respect. It's not going to be taken away from you. That's the subtext of the first movie. Finn actively destroys Bianca's work in her own room, trying to hurt her, trying to scare her into leaving his inherited possessions alone. You're telling me that Finn, out of his frickin' allowance, bought all that Lego? No. Most of it was bought by the man upstairs and he inherited it. He'd have gotten a bunch of Christmas and birthdays as well. Maybe bought some of it with his allowance. He did not earn all that Lego. He inherited it from the previous generation. The Lego that's his in the first movie is the Cloud Cuckoo Land stuff. He amplifies the harm of the original movie tenfold. Because there was always always a rift clearly between business and Finn, but it was always kind of a... It had established itself as, as Finn felt a little scared of his towering father and his rules, but there was an affection in the way that he was depicted. Mm-hmm. Bianca and, and Finn are really on rocky ground. This is the kind of explosive incident that poisons a relationship. Honestly... I think the person or the character that represents Finn even more acutely than Rex in this is Kitty. Huh. Because she goes from being Unikitty to being Ultra Kitty. Ultra Kitty. And that means she's angry all, all the, the time. time. Ah. And by the end of it, she manages to find her self the self that we saw her be in the first one that magnifies Mm. when you remember that finn's lego is the cloud cuckoo land lego Mm. here in cloud cuckoo land there are no rules there's no government no babysitters no bedtimes no frowny faces no bushy mustaches and no negativity of any kind you just said the word no like a thousand times and there's also no consistency I hate this place. Any idea is a good idea, except the not happy ones. Those you push down deep inside where you'll never, ever, ever, ever find them. 
They're also, do you remember when Wild Styles trying to get Kitty angry so they can get a bit of an extra boost on their wagon, which I have right here? I freaking love this Fury Road <laughs> thing. Um, uh, if you can get if you get the Ultra Kitty, you can put her on top as well, like in in real life. Oh my god! Anyway, oh, that's um, cool. <laughs> she's she's trying to get her her angry. I can't remember what she says first, but the thing that that sticks is they keep putting raisins and things, and Kitty's angry about that. It's a gag, but that's a real that's a arrow through the heart of angry YouTubers angry boys angry at anything like doesn't matter what it is you're just angry at it not just boys by any means obviously this affects men who are told throughout their lives that the only real acceptable feelings that they can uh, experience are anger they feel fear and express it as anger. They feel frustration and express it as anger. They feel joy and express it as an angry kind of possessive joy. They are allowed to feel disgust, which manifests itself as revulsion, which is anger plus disgust. Mm-hmm. And disgust is part of our emotional makeup so that we can detect that the food in our mouth is rotten and spit it out. Get rid of the thing that might be poisoning us. Revulsion comes when we're angry at the person who gave us that. And the natural feeling experienced when you're going through revulsion is to want to get your whole self away from the thing. But this kind of hyper-compounded revulsion is a reaction to the fact that they can't make the thing that disgusts them go away. And they choose not to walk away from the thing and just spit it out. They squat on it. They gnash their teeth and then... Two years after The Last Jedi comes out, you're still getting Here's Why The Last Jedi Ruined Everything videos. It's absolutely fine to not love The Last Jedi, to not like The Last Jedi, to hate The Last Jedi. But if you're still making videos on how it ruined everything, you need to spit it out. And I was yes. I was reading an article earlier today on the BBC about a, a men's group that were working on the whole you've got to acknowledge your emotions before you can process them basically and one of the comments that was made by one of the participants was girls get asked how they feel all the time now admittedly they then get told okay now don't feel that but they do get given a language to use and to express it and again this kind of adds a layer to that envy that Finn is feeling of Bianca. He envies her imagination. He envies the flexibility that she has, the fact that she can build aggressive technological stuff and soft, squishy, fluffy stuff, which he feels like he's got to move away from. And that's where the music element comes into this. The observation in this that sometimes it's okay to play that upbeat, poppy, techno, everybody cheerful thing despite Lucy's best efforts. emotion that I missed out there is the saddest aspect of this, that boys are not allowed to feel sadness. They're not allowed by each other to feel sadness. Sadness is absolutely key to empathy. If somebody is sad, you 
want to go and comfort them. If somebody admits mm. that they're sad, that can create more of a bond there. If you're not allowed to feel sadness, you're also not allowed to empathise with other people's sadness. You just seize up when other people become uh, sad. So this is why uh, Spider-Man fans of a certain type are, are currently furious about a film that happened last May, Infinity War, wherein Peter Parker, at the end of all things, after everyone was turning to ash, including he himself, cried. How dare he? Mm. Like a little bitch. I wouldn't have cried. I'd have, I'd have met my end with a square jaw. And not only does the Lego Movie 2 show that being the process that Rex goes through as mirrored in, in what is happening in Finn and could become this very toxic, bad thing for his character, but then it also contrasts that with the characters who experience something very similar when they're locked in the box of storage. They also are more or less abandoned. They're not alone, but they're in a very sad and hopeless situation, but they face it very, very differently. I was not expecting the rallying cry for weary millennials that this movie it turns into. It's just like, yeah, the world kind of sucks right now. That's sad. Not everything is awesome right now. That floored let's, me. Let's see, we, let's see what we can do about that. Things can't be awesome all of the time. It's an unrealistic expectation. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to make everything awesome in a less idealistic kind of way. We should maybe aim for not bad. Because right now, not bad would be really great. But it's it's in a way that addresses it in, a, in an emotionally honest way of... A, a call to action that is not violent and angry was downright shocking to me because that's the only sort of thing that we're, you know, we're all supposed to, as men, we're all supposed to react like Kratos from God of War. And that's the only way that we can do it. One of my favorite uh, uh, critics, Mark Coma, described this film as a story in two heads. So everything that we're seeing is actually taking place in almost David Lynchian style uh, within the two heads of these two kids. But there's actually a third layer to it. We've already kind of touched upon it, which is you're seeing the Lego characters do their thing and you're seeing them clash. The second layer being this is the brother and sister clashing. The third layer being they are representative of a clash between angry boys of the kinds that we're just describing here of many ages with people who kind of are just discovering these toys or for the first time are finding themselves represented within these toys and these angry boys clamp down their fists and go no these are my toys they're my ghostbusters it's my star wars it's my batman it's my spider-man it's my doctor who but this level of furious ownership, while exhausting, is also addictive. It's addictive for the level of power and control they perceive themselves as having. So with toys that were never even theirs, no one's allowed to enjoy them at all. And because they can't say, it's my Black Panther, you know, Wakanda doesn't actually exist. And because they can't say, it's my Captain Marvel, she is insufficient as a hero. Sharon muttered the other day, quite rightly after I showed her the Spider-Man thing. This mindset is symptomatic of someone who is not well, and not equipped to deal with the flow of the real world. And I theorize that the time so many of us came of age ran parallel with the general access to the internet at the turn of the century, and we were briefly connected to be able to bitch about movies and perv on chat rooms. I don't delude myself that the internet back then was a utopia. 
But then 9-11 happened, and the effects rippled out from America across the world with a complete turnabout of the naivety of the 90s, which was quite a boring decade if you were there, and a climate of feeling ready to be attacked at all times. Even though those doomsday attacks we feared never came, it left everybody on high alert. We replay that targeted disaster in our movies still to this day, and we respond to irritations online with overcompensating defensiveness. I'm guilty of this myself. Everything is a crisis. The more we wallow in the news and the horror, the worse it gets. Children who were born after 9-11, who have no memory of how the world was before this, grew up on that internet, where everybody else was acting like that, so they followed suit. And because everything's a crisis, some people treat with equal weight to human rights violations, decisions made during video game development. Because everything's a crisis, we don't have that perspective. That ability to go, this is more of a level 2 problem than a level 10. It's not a national emergency. Multiple generations have been scarred. And it's going to take a long while to figure ourselves out. Luckily you, dear listener, picked the right podcast to help you process. Oh great, more singing right on time. Listen Bruce. Who's Bruce? It's nothing personal. It's just... I've dated men like you before and you're just not my type. my type Never around during the day, only come out at night Emotionally wounded, dark and brooding all the time Hanging around with clowns, I don't need that in my life I ain't Selena Kyle, I ain't no Vicky Bell I was never into you even when you were Christian Bell I'm more of a Keaton guy myself Oh, I love Timmy's Beetlejuice I'm just not into God but that's what makes us so relatable. I'm just not into guys who can fly. I can fly. The back wing can fly. Rich boys with catches, they're not my type. What is your type? Kryptonian men on my crib tonight. I'm just not into Gotham City guys. So what? You're not into me. I don't care. But like, listen up. You're clearly just confused. Gotham dudes are the best. We have deep manly voices and insanely rib packs. We're Affleck level hot and we're Oprah level rich. With George Clooney level charm and Val Kilmer lips. We work for our powers cause we're self-made men. We didn't just get them from the sun like an entitled alien. Go on one day with me and you'll change your mind. Unsubscribe. I'm just not into God. Sharon's got her hand up. <laughs> Ma- Maya Rudolph. We're, we're sort just, of jumping around the the, the, the the subtexts here, but yeah, Maya Rudolph's mom. Who she is, and uh, this 
Absolutely, yes, thumbs up. Love Maya Rudolph. Need her to be in way more stuff than she is. She's superb. Yeah. As an aside, uh, Alex and Sharon, thank you for getting me to watch The Good Place. And when I saw her, I did a little cheer. So Yay! thank you. She That's awesome going to be kind of something we... you mention, actually, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I think we touched on it briefly. We no, didn't no. go into it. Now. Remember I said, hold that back oh, till we talk about the Lego movie too, yeah. because of the position she plays in The Good Place. Right, okay. Might play well, into yeah. what you're about to say. First off, looking at this from an extremely top-down perspective, here's my theory. The man upstairs... Is it a fan theory or is it fanfic? I am a fan and this is my theory. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> if no one wants to agree with me, that's fine. Okay. There are lots of theories, but this one is mine. And if it turns out to not be true, you're not going to like hit the internet and go, my Snoke theory, sorry, my Maya Rudolph mom theory. Here's another thing, though, that that is one of the greatest things I ever heard about religion was uh, my religion doesn't require you to believe in it. Mm -hmm. And my theory does not require anybody else to believe in it. So the man upstairs is an absconded and absentee god Yahweh who has laid down the law for order and then when that's been disrupted has gone okay peace out and disappeared presumably to play golf I don't know where God plays golf but wherever it is that's where he is mom is mother earth who is sick of your shit and it's hitting the point where we are etch-a-sketching everything if you guys can't figure out how to play nicely together. The Lego Movie 2, a family-friendly version of Mother. <laughs> yes! 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 Thank you! Mother! <laughs> Exclamation point. Brilliant, I like it. Yes, there we the go. Lego <laughs> <laughs> the Lego version. The Lego Mother! So They even try to sugarcoat it with our mama getting in our... Mm. Like, uh, honestly, they do their best not to freak out the children. But I, I, honestly, if you're an adult of a certain level of sensitivity, this film could shake you to your core. Mm, it indeed. did me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was kind of underpinned and reinforced for me by the fact that uh, Maya Rudolph plays a character in The Good Place who is very definitely of the divine. That's something that I hadn't even thought about before you put the question in, Alex, um, because... I, I was just sort of caught on the back foot of like, oh yeah, no, that's just my mom because <laughs> that that's just that the the Finn Bianca dynamic is pretty much exactly what was going on between me and my sister at that age. My mom was you know was a teacher and so she stayed home with us during the summer and so that's that's just what happened for a few years at my house until we learned to do the end of the Lego Movie too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I hadn't even really thought of like where to classify that, but I think Sharon hit that is she's almost like the filmmakers, you know, pulling the curtain back and saying, oh, by the way, here's the message. And what's going to happen, guys, if we can't figure out how to do this, how to grow past the toxic masculinity, how to grow past artificial gender divides, we're just going to lose everything. It's just all going to be gone and we're going to be left in the cold and the dark, and we're just going to be dead. So it's actually got four levels. The Lego dudes, the kids, the fan base level in terms of toxic fanboys, who I've actually rechristened last night hate boys, 
Because they don't thrive on loving something, they thrive on hating the people who don't love it in the... Uh, well, they don't they obsess about it in the way that they claim to love it. And they actually end up kind of turning everything around because all they can feel is spite. They end up hating the thing they claim to love. How and dare everything... you put raisins in Star Wars? Exactly. Yeah. And, and everything ends up just being bitter poison because they can't love it anymore. And so they're just hate boys. And Karu, you blew us the fuck away last night. I was talking about this on Twitter, and Karu said that this was the equivalent of the worst kind of evangelical Christian. This is not an attack on Christianity. It's the kind of Christian that uses Jesus to hit you over the head with and say, this is my God. I'm going to obey him in this particular way, which means I have license to be shitty to this sort of person and that is love and that is love and it's antithetical to everything that jesus apparently stands for i'm not religious myself but as far as i can tell he was all about hey guys maybe we just get along and that's the opposite of what evangelical christians of the worst type are into it feels like if jesus actually did turn up i was thinking about saying this on twitter but i thought it could be misinterpreted by complete strangers if jesus did turn up today it'd be like oh thank god praise god jesus okay right can you smite the muslims and uh the gays and uh the mexicans and the women who want to have abortions and jesus be like oh my me <laughs> you you know nothing of my work. I mean, the Mexicans are like 85% Catholic. What the? These worlds and characters, at least the ones that persist, you know, Luke Skywalker, Jesus, are designed to bring joy and teach some important life lessons. And wherever you go, the ones shouting the loudest about them seem to be those that haven't learnt the lessons and are using that source of joy to inflict pain on those that they deem to be lesser. That is toxic fandom, and it comes from a place of deep insecurity. And that toxic fandom, being allegorical of evangelical Christians, thus makes it a fourth level of it being allegorical with our own demons in general. Our own worst side that on a societal level holds us back and causes constant conflict. I don't know if there's any further level you can go beyond that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we've hit the celestial. I think that's about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. just the nature of existence, I think, where, where like, what the hell are they going to wheel out for the Lego Movie 3? I'm getting so many levels that I'm having Back to the Future level yeah. headaches. This makes Inception look like, oh, that was easy. Like, straightforward. <laughs> Frankly, a little too simple. Thank you, Christopher Nolan. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, so they've, they've ditched on Nolan's Batman. They've improved on his inception. <laughs> next, what's next? Lego Interstellar. Oh yeah. no, they did that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Then he takes center stage for a little while. It's well, uh, yeah. They talk about the nature of existence, considering that these are apparently toys that are self-aware. So yeah. That it's in there too. <laughs> yeah. And somehow it doesn't like none of them actually go. Yar, what be the point of any of this if we're just being manipulated by some godlike creatures? Oh, no, 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 but Rex does. Yeah. He says, like, none of this is even happening. It's just the uh, subconscious of an adolescent boy. So he has that nothing really matters, and he spent the most time outside of like the model and uh, with all the other characters. So he is the most attached. So he is there to say, 
Nothing really matters, so I'm going to destroy it. We talk about this in The Good Place next week when we talk about existential crises. This is what happens to weak-minded people when they uh, uh, see the world for the limited amount that they can see it is. Like, it's all a lie, I've seen through the Matrix. And their response is nihilism. Guess that entitles me to be an asshole. Yep. I be- we believe in nothing, Lebowski, nothing. And tomorrow, <laughs> we come back and be cut off your chanson. <laughs> It'd be so much better if Nihilus would just make peep chili. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so let's dial it back a bit, because we're still in, on meta level two now. If we could we just dial it back a bit. So, no one's ever gone to level three. Well, uh. he just did, sir. So, <laughs> that's a very clever movie, Inception. Anyway, um, if Emmett always represented Finn in the first movie, and if in this movie his personality is split between youthful optimism, slightly older cynicism, and now I'm going to amend that to also Unikitty for his his uh, anima, who is Bianca's avatar in all this? I think Bianca's avatar is split between both Queen Whatever I Want to Be, which is, you know, Finn gave her the heart and said, you can be whatever you want to be, but she's also very much taking on this additional sort of accoutrement that she sees him using in his play as general mayhem. The, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I've tried to approach you in all these different ways. Maybe if I invite you to my fancy tea party in the method of this weird, crazy conflict and aliens that you're always into with an awesome mask and a badass voice. And now Stephanie Beatrice doesn't so much sound like Rosa Diaz as like one of the Terminators. Maybe then you'll be more receptive to me. So I think it's, she's kind of got like those two halves that sort of form up her avatar slash representation. Especially because, when um, my fiance and I were watching this, we sort of had cottoned on to you know Rex being Emmett. So at one point, I think we both thought, "What if uh, Mayhem is going to look like Lucy, mm. and that's why they're hiding it?" And in the end, she doesn't like. Li- she's not a literal one-to-one reflection of Lucy. But she does have some of the similar colours to, I think her eyeshadow is the blue and pink that is in Lucy's hair. And the largely turquoise hair, yeah. And so I think that, like, to split and complicate this even further, Finn is not just Emmett and Rex and Unikitty, he's also Lucy in a sense that I think, like, some part of him is, like, sceptical and like questioning this and trying to understand it and maybe is the part of him that is aware that what he's doing when he goes up to destroy this is wrong and can only lead to catastrophic consequences which is um, Armageddon so I think that the two halves Mayhem and Lucy working together and forming this kind of sisterly partnership is both children realising we can fix this, we can unify this, but there are the other parts of themselves which get in the way and muddy that. Yeah. Mm. Finn's got to let his more candy-coloured side come through to make Mm. this work. I agree, by the way, Toby. I I interpreted Lucy as being kind of shifting from, uh, like, sometimes she's being effectively an avatar for Finn. Sometimes she's a, a sympathetic avatar for Bianca. Like, Bianca has... Lucy in her hands 
and is thinking to herself, I'm holding part of Finn here. Like, I'm holding a bit of my brother's property, a bit of my brother's imagination. I've got to be respectful of her. The whole, like, oh, you've got turquoise hair, you can interpret that as her just getting, like, a cotton bud going at, at Lucy's hair and going, oh, hang on, there, this was turquoise underneath, and finding out something about her brother painting over this hair. With Sharpie. Mm. With Sharpie. Because, I mean, I was getting, one of my other questions is the significance of Wildstyle's hair and her rejection of, of girlishness, which all kind of plays into this. That, that, again, seems to key up with Finn rejecting Cloud Cuckoo Land, with uh, the whole everything is awesome thing. He plays, at the beginning, it's supposed to be this kind of annoying song that he still kind of likes. But then you find out at the end that Wildstyle sang it, that she had this turquoise hair and obviously Finn sets the pop song which is this song gonna get stuck inside your head in this one as like the music of the enemy and the brainwashed it keeps going on about brainwashing which is again this whole red pill bullshit more on that in the the, uh, Matrix episode but what's the significance of Wildstyle's rejection of girlishness in part I think that is a nod to I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to call it internalised misogyny, not in the way that it's it's represented here, but that stage of becoming an older girl where if you want to play with the boys, you've got to push the girly stuff away. Got to and code yourself male a little. A little bit. And that, that does mean, for a short while at least, and for some people for quite a long while, separating out a part of yourself and if not outright rejecting it then at least eyeing it very suspiciously as Lucy does with Queen Whatever. And it works especially in the video game community the girls that are accepted and wildly championed are the yeah. ones who are like I could kick your ass at Call of Duty exactly. and they are there's nothing feminine about them because they've crushed it because it is a sign of weakness to these You play hate how boys. you play how we want you to play otherwise you don't play. Now Hashtag honestly, not all Call of Duty players. This I think was a lot more prominent in the mid 2000s Hashtag most of them. <laughs> I think this was this was a lot more prominent than the mid two thousands because I think it's now getting to the point where the girls are going, well, fuck that. There's enough of us now that we can all just play together. Plus, so we there's don't a whole bunch of girls playing Fortnite, yeah. where it's a lot more colourful, less Indeed. desaturated, and grim. So I think mm-hmm. the 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 rinsing out of the black is both loot both Finn's element of I'll reaccept that candy coloured side of me and Bianca's hovering on the edge of do I have to push that away if I want to play with him oh actually no I don't which is a really Mm. positive thing it also is a hint of the the state in which I think the the gender progression of the girls boys toys false dichotomy is which is we've done so much work on Girls can play with whatever they want. Girls can do whatever they want. And this is not me saying that there is no more work to do by any means. And obviously there's a lot of maintenance work that has to be done to make sure that that effort doesn't fall away. But the next step is boys can play with pink shit. Boys can play with Barbies and we don't get to pick on them for it. They need to be allowed to embrace whatever it is in their impulse to embrace and not be trammeled into, you've got to go this way. Because otherwise, it's not fair. If if society as a whole is saying, girls can do whatever they want, but boys have still... Well, 
Yeah, but this is this is what I mean. The the whole the girls play has been reintegrated quite a lot. But it is unfair that there isn't a similar one to open up the path that boys are still pushed down. And the the mockery of you want to play with girls stuff. You want to go out wearing dresses, you want to go out wearing nail polish, all that kind of thing. Just stop. Just stop mm-hmm. doing that because they need to be allowed to express themselves in whatever way they want as well. We get to, and women are much better at shoring each other up into you can do whatever you want to do, you can be whatever you want to be. Boys deserve the same. child so I and I spent most of my time playing alone um, but it was very much I would tell myself stories and you know very as small children are want to do very over the top and melodramatic and they had lots of death and destruction and danger <laughs> and all kinds of things but definitely absolutely yes it was very story driven and I didn't really play with dolls. I, I was I was a kid who read. Um, I, I built built outside some, but yes, absolutely. There was always a story. There was always you know there was drama. There was there was danger. There was and, and not really fighting per se, but but yes, that, absolutely yes. Very much that was very much true. And but uh, I would add that also that from a very early age I felt a very um, I felt the, mis- the internalized misogyny very very strongly and I very much rejected anything perceived as girly not necessarily feminine but pink I, I, I'm still like it, I, I still have a very hard time even looking at clothes that are pink or predominantly pink and I, things that are very, very girly, like super, you know, women who are very into that kind of, you know, very girly and froofy and fluffy and all that kind of stuff is, there's still a part of my brain is that, no, you must be, you must not be vulnerable. You must not, you must present yourself as a hard person. You must, you know, like, if I, if I have to walk through a crowd, especially if I'm alone, something I, I armor I developed very early was, you walk with purpose, you you don't smile too much, and people will generally leave you alone, you won't be bothered, and very much, very much that, you know, as much as possible to kind of put my femininity kind of in a box and express it in certain ways, but not in others. Mm. Where Elsa, not Anna. Yes. For this next bit, I'm going to play you a segment from Jenny Nicholson's video, Is Forces of Destiny Good? From this, I learned a surprising amount, relatively late in life, about the differences between the way girls and boys play, in a way that is not illuminated to you as a boy. And I figured rather than just regurgitating what she said, you'd be better off hearing it from the expert. Take it away, Jenny. (laughs) 
2017, Disney announced that they were going to spin off their toy line into a new girl-oriented doll brand called Forces of Destiny. These are roughly Barbie-sized dolls of a selection of female Star Wars characters, and more recently they've started making the boys, God knows why. They don't translate well. In most stores, the Forces of Destiny dolls hang out in the same toy aisle with all the rest of the Star Wars toys, and they fit in pretty good. I mean, like visually, it's just a Rey doll with brushable hair. It all kind of looks like what you'd expect. But to make sure that you know that these are dolls for girls and definitely not for boys, the packaging is rendered in this palette of purples and psychedelic oranges. It's very much like a sunset or the Instagram logo. It's a little girlier, but it's kind of understated. I actually think it looks really nice, but I'm a girl, so I would, wouldn't I? To tie into the doll line, Disney also released a series of webisodes. Bad webisodes are very in vogue for doll lines. I think this was pioneered by Monster High. So I have now watched every episode of Forces of Destiny. I am the Forces of Destiny lore expert. Let's look at some typical storylines. Ray saves BB-8 from a sand monster. Ray saves BB-8 from bandits. Leia saves an Ewok from some stormtroopers. Ahsoka saves a little squid alien child from a rampaging droid. Leia saves Chewbacca from a wampa. Jyn Erso saves a cat from some stormtroopers. Padme rescues a baby sea monster from some poachers. You might be like, why are so many of these about the female Star Wars character saving some kind of furry or cute companion creature? The answer is because every deluxe doll comes with some kind of cute or furry companion creature for the doll to nurture or protect. Leia comes with an Ewok, Luke comes with Yoda, and Rey comes with Kylo Ren. To their credit, the webisodes do pretty much give this storyline a rest in season two, but just because they get more different doesn't mean they get better. I wanna be clear that I am not judging the webisodes based on adult entertainment standards. Like, I feel like I can say Sophia the First is a great show, which it is, without you guys mistakenly thinking that I am recommending it to adults. I'm not going to complain that the webisodes are boring, even though they are, or that nothing of consequence happens in them, even though it doesn't. The writers are working within the constraints of the format and you just can't tell a very complete story within two minutes of runtime. But it's not really the responsibility of the webisodes to tell a complete story. And I'm telling you that because I'm building to bigger crimes. Number three, the characters. Very embarrassingly, by trying to showcase all of the female Star Wars characters, Forces of Destiny just kind of unintentionally highlighted that there are not a lot of those. The first lineup of Forces of Destiny dolls were Jyn Erso, Sabine from the TV show, Leia in two different outfits, and Rey in two different outfits. That's four characters. Okay, I'm gonna drive this problem home for you. Hop in my car, problem. Let me give you a lift. So, Forces of Destiny and pretty much every other doll line for the last eight years has been trying to recapture the lightning in a bottle success of Monster High. Oh look, welcome back, Monster High. Monster High made Mad Bank and was basically the first doll line to be an actual phenomenon since Bratz. Monster High is notable because it kicked off that trend of unconventional fashion dolls. It introduced the idea that you can make a doll that has animal ears or four arms or two heads or horse legs and little girls are gonna like it and it's gonna make money. This is 
one would think great news for Star Wars because they have all these interesting alien and creature designs. So anyway, let's look at our first lineup of Monster High Dolls, which were six characters, but who's counting? They also had webisodes and the webisodes are also bad. But here's what's important. If you look at these six different characters, you can see that one is the fashionista, one is the sporty girl, one is the girly girl, one is the school bully, one is the generic main character, and then one is like, Boy. So compare that to our Forces of Destiny characters. We have tough, no-nonsense female character who can fight and cares about justice. And then we have that same character three more times. These characters aren't all identical within Star Wars, like they have nuance within their respective films and TV shows that set them apart. Of course, if you are familiar with the source material, you would know that Rey exists in a totally different decade than the other dolls and couldn't realistically hang out with them, and that Jyn so canonically died in an explosion which I don't think is true of any of Barbie's friends. Point number four, what is the point of the webisodes? Webisodes are two minutes long. Webisodes are cheap and they look bad. The point of webisodes is not to tell a compelling story. The point of a webisode is to establish a compelling jumping off point for children to imagine their own stories with their dolls. If you watch the Monster High webisodes, they usually communicate day-to-day -day conflicts or the most basic ways the dolls interact with each other. You might find out that the werewolf girl's ambition is to join the cheerleading team, or the mummy girl is a bully. The vampire girl is worried that she's going to fail a test, but the zombie girl is the top of the class. This isn't just good guy Monster High trying to be like, let's encourage imaginative play in young girls. It is smart doll marketing. Maybe you bought the Banshee doll because you thought it was pretty, but then you read on the back of the box that she's best friends with the Abominable Snowman doll. Suddenly you gotta get that doll too. But the Abominable Snowman doll has a crush on the Black Lagoon monster. Well, your games aren't complete without that doll. I mean, in Monster High, one of the characters is just straight up mean and she pranks the other girls. And that's a doll that you'd want to get because you could introduce conflict into your stories. There are a few exceptions, but the overwhelming majority of Forces of Destiny episodes feature only one of the doll characters on some kind of solo mission. And since it's an action mission and the concern is on making the doll characters seem strong and competent and good role models, none of them really have any flaws or anything to suggest any nuances to their character that would set them apart from the other ones. There's no indication of the doll's relationship with the other dolls, and I know why that is, it's because they're spread against three different decades, so these two characters never would hang out. But that's kind of its own problem. Since none of the Forces of Destiny episodes feature any of the dolls having flaws or insecurities, I can't imagine them making you interested in playing with the toys. Even on the rare occasions where you see two of the characters interacting with each other, it's just in a very benign and friendly way. You have an episode where Ahsoka and Padme fight off a bounty hunter together, but it's such a surface level and action-oriented interaction that you might as well just be watching two co-workers at an office. It seems like a lot of characters in this doll line they're not really enemies, they're not really friends, and a lot of them never interact at all, and never can or will. So, that's not a lot to work with. Jenny Nicholson's video goes on for 31 minutes, and I won't play the whole thing for you here. But it's great, and I heartily recommend you guys subscribe to her YouTube channel. It is a weekly dose of sunshine. She's smart, she's funny, she's courageous. And she's able to love things and criticize them without getting too frenzied about it. Even I can't manage that. 
It is noteworthy, by the way, that male Star Wars fans uh, took the Forces of Destiny line very much in their stride. They were supportive of little girls playing in this world and uh, were very much looking forward to the idea of, like, what am I talking about? They were yelling SJW Star Wars before the announcement was even finished. It's a trap! Do you think these Lego movies have enough universality to their themes that they won't date too hard when we're past this difficult point in history? Yes, I, I totally agree. There's a lot of universality there in the fact that it hits some very, very core things, and there's absolutely the surface stuff of, or not surface, but surface and textual or subtextual about gender and, you know, very, you know, what's going on right now. However, there's also a lot of growing up is hard. There's a lot of, you know, of the emotional complexity of growing up and siblings trying to get along and not being good at it. And I think I think that's something, you know, no matter what happens with gender, I think siblings have always fought from time immemorial and I think they're only going to continue to do so. I don't think that's that even if the gender stuff goes away, siblings fighting is not going to go away. Children struggling to relate to and understand their parents and parents you know, having to remember what it's like to be be small kids. And I, I think, yes, it will absolutely stand the test of time. Parts of it may not, but there's enough there that I think is universal enough that it absolutely will. It's very much of its time for me in terms of, you're absolutely right about the whole siblings have always fought, and that's natural. It's, it's natural to want to assert your own personality in a scenario where, in, in a family, you're being challenged. That's where all the family drama comes from when you're doing family play, when you're playing. It's, if everyone just got along, it would be an insufficient model for life in the real world. <laughs> Uh, however, at, right now at this time period, we're hurting our sisters. We are really hurting our sisters. And this is a call to just maybe ease back a little. Just maybe to the, to the guys who even got one shred of empathy left, just pull back a little, maybe open up that clenched fist. One of my favorite elements in this film and it's a little thing and I didn't realize until I uh, saw it the second time the little hearts that go hello <laughs> this is yeah. Bianca firing hearts at Finn saying remember the heart and he doesn't remember he's forgotten Do it's her reaching exactly it is her reaching out to him and that the movie is effectively saying if if nothing else when someone's reaching out don't bite their hand just mm -hmm. just maybe for a bit try not biting their hand the worst that can happen is that you have to take part in a lame wedding ceremony between batman and this shapeshifter <laughs> <laughs> and the if emma is representative of the younger version of himself then him letting the star, like, and consequently, uh, General Mayhem in, I think, is a sense of 
like the younger version of himself being open, the part of himself that did offer that heart in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Because while I mentioned that Rex's true nature is to be this this jealous, angry thing, that's not Finn's true nature. That's an aspect of Finn. You're not a bad person. Besides, the, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and dark inside us. We've all got Emmett and Rex inside us. What matters is the part we choose to act on. That's who we really are. And mm. Rex is a a lesson to become somebody hard and guarded because of something that hasn't happened yet and doesn't have to. Mm. He he goes away by the end of it and he acknowledges that's okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I love that Wildstyle and Emmett are both like, you don't, you, you know, you don't have to go away, you know, we can save you. And it's, I, I think it's a good, I, I think there's something good there in simply in the fact of them being caring enough to acknowledge that. And also the fact that there maybe are parts of that, maybe, maybe, again, this is part of Finn's personality Parts a hundred percent of that isn't necessarily bad. Just in understanding yourself and understanding that you know, good and bad is all you. You know, you're still rejecting a part of yourself. Understand what that means and find a healthy way to deal with it. But you should still find the positive parts if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. it does. The song, the everything's not awesome. That was the bit that actually tore me to pieces because as you say it's, it's, it's the rallying cry for weary millennials it, it feels like we are so down and it feels like what does he have to do before we impeach at what point can we actually start winning and mm. we're slowly slowly on the way back up again it's just it's it's a wall and the uh, you know the, the the lyrics of the song and the way that it, it's pitched it, it's an unrealistic expectation for everything to be awesome all the time it's cocking a snook at what we were like a few years ago when like I remember Patton Oswalt did a routine about how maybe Obama would be so good that there'd only be two racists left in America <laughs> <laughs> the night we elected Obama CNN had holograms they had fucking holograms. We have Star Wars technology now. What if that means that Barack is going to be the miracle he seems to be? Like, what if this really is the dawning of an amazing age? He gets in there, fixes the economy, gets us out of Iraq and Afghanistan. We've got Osama bin Laden and George Bush and dunking booze filled with urine. You can just throw apples at him all day. And then... What if he starts slinging amazing future technology on us? You know, suddenly we get like hover boots and teleportation pills and there's floating cars everywhere. At that point, would there be like two remaining holdout racists left? Like the last two guys down in Arkansas in their hover boots? Like just going, yeah, there's that that gave us anti-gravity. This guy's the worst president ever. 
But uh, he was barking up the wrong tree that the, 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 the racism would, in fact, double down, treble down, quadruple down, octuple down. As a, uh, not, not, I made it sound earlier like it was Obama's fault for awakening the beast in Trump. It's emblematic of we thought we were moving forwards, and we were moving forwards. But then the people who didn't want to move forwards pushed us pushed back, back as hard back as they really, really could. hard. Yeah. Everything's not awesome. Everything's not cool. I am so depressed. Everything's not awesome. Whoa, I think I finally get Radiohead. Bro, you should check out Elliot Smith. What's the point? There's no hope. Awesomeness was a pipe dream. I, my spirits be at the bottom of the sea. Love's not real. I just want to eat carbs past the ice cream. I'm not a thing you can just use to fill emotional voids with. Stop, everyone. Okay, just listen. Everything's not awesome. But that doesn't mean that it's hopeless and bleak Everything's not awesome But in my heart I It is natural for human society to evolve, culturally, scientifically, even if our bodies don't have time to catch up, and we're anxious about our bosses in the same way we would have been about saber-toothed tigers. The 20th century was a quantum leap forward, and the 21st even more so. We're speeding up, almost too fast to comprehend. Global warming was a dumb phrase from the start when boneheads can complain that it ain't too warm when it's snowing in Nevada, thus deliberately missing the point of climate change, which again is too easy a term to dismiss because climates change all the time. What it should be called is rapid climate change. 
indicating clearly that we did this, and it's ourselves, more than the Earth, that we have to be worried for. Selfish assholes don't care about Mother Earth, but they might care about their grandchildren's continued existence upon her, or if not, their children, or if not, at least themselves. Conservatism and right-wing leanings are again a natural inertia effect of cultural evolution. As things speed up, a certain kind of person wants to jam on the brakes because things have become frightening and unfamiliar. They may even want to put us in reverse. But we can't go back in time. We can't make it that our actions never occurred. That's what time travel stories are all about. The acceptance that the bad and good things in the past occurred and to move forward and deal with what's happening now is healthy. To not fight to avoid the future and all its terrifying comeuppances that none of us want to think about, but to work smarter and together in a manner that minimizes the lasting damage and goes some way to repairing, rebuilding and developing. This isn't about blaming past generations or current ones for screwing up. It's about what can be saved when enough of us accept and start to deal. And a way we can start dealing is if all of us make working on our communication abilities a priority. We're in the communication age. That's what we have to adapt to. But, okay, to round it off, and I can't believe no one's mentioned this, so I'm going to just go ahead and say it. The uh, um, Whoever mentioned the whole hanging around in this dragon gold kind of toxic basement, just reveling in the Lego, uh, this becoming Finn's territory and Bianca's room being her territory, they end up outside in neutral territory. They end up together in the garden, in the fresh air, playing in a way that feels about as healthy as it can get. Mm. And Mother Earth smiles and credits. And the it's also, it's a lot more subdued than the original Lego movie. If you go from one to the other, the first one's really manic. Like, even with the, the everything is awesome, they they tone it down, they pull it back. It's a it's more mature in, in almost every way, this movie. It's mm. more um, thought-provoking. And the credits reflect that, even if they are hilarious. It, it fits the it fits the the fact of you know that's about the attention span. The first one is about the attention span of of Finn in that who's what did we say he was eight? He's very yeah. similar to Benny. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned that, you know I'm I'm hoping for serious Benny growth in the third one. <laughs> yes, and Metalbeard, who is one of my favorite characters. The whole welcome to Shark Week. I love Metalbeard. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that it's you know that that's them and then now he's 13 and he's he's a little adult he's he's much more grown up and he has a much more you know extended attention span and he's built you know dark and gritty stories but he has built stories it seems to fit with the age that its, it's protagonist is 
And I really love uh, General Mayhem, the whole... Uh, she she is the culmination of... We've already talked about this around the block of of the rejection of the feminine. But, like, she's clothed in, like, white and uh, uh, fuchsia and these sparkly blue uh, elements to her costume. And she's obviously still very feminine. She's got a heart on that visor. And the, the, the voice disruptor and the candor trying to be really severe and actiony uh, and and uh, almost threatening in a way she hopes will appeal to Finn so that when the helmet comes off and it's just the the hair underneath and the, the little pink face and the, and the, the, the anime eyes um, it's a moment of true vulnerability and uh, this again makes almost it almost makes inside out seem too straightforward in terms of how many facets of these kids personalities and their mental makeup are coming forth to be personified as these plastic minifigs it's a, it's a it's a wonderfully elegant movie the whole way through it was going to be impossible to top the first one which is now i think just about eclipsed uh, kung fu panda was one of my all-time favorite animated movies up there with tangled and the lion king i think the lego movie one might be my favorite but the lego movie two because of all of these levels has more of an impact it, it means more it may not be a better made movie because they are like, like we've got a subtext and a sub-subtext and a sub-sub-subtext and we are going to get to those. So here's some jokes to, to sweeten the deal, but we are going to get to that message. Some of the reviews have been quite sniffy because people don't like being told messages. People don't like things getting political. <clears throat> Read into that. People don't like it when politics run counter to their own. Yeah. It really does feel to me almost like a, a Guardians of the Galaxy versus Guardians of the Galaxy 2 situation where, you know, I, I think obviously the, the first one had flaws that the second one improved on. But there was this odd sense of, you know, the first one had the new franchise smell and there was a weird sort of pushback on the second a little bit from certain, you know, like it, it wasn't quite as well received critically and, and stuff like that. Mm. But I, I think it was it was a harder but richer emotional experience. And the Lego movie, too, feels very much akin to that. Yeah, that's a great comparison. Mm-hmm. So hopefully Warner Brothers won't, on a whim, completely fire Lord and Miller from uh, all future Lego productions for no good goddamn reason. <sighs> Uh, Warner Brothers is happy to pick up anybody that Disney leaves behind, apparently. This show ran very long, and we ended up with three hours of raw footage. So in trimming it down to the best and most focused main podcast that I could, we ended up with a bonus episode of deleted footage that was 87 minutes long. It's going to be on Patreon this weekend if you're supporting us for $5 a month. Here's a clip. The way that they present Queen Whatever Wannabe from the viewer uh, sort of paradigm of, okay, I am watching a movie, an animated kids film, and we just saw a quote-unquote Disney villain song. And Disney villains are always somehow defined very negatively by their appearance. Ursula is monstrous, but also very assertively sensual. Gothel is is hiding her, her beauty with stolen magic. 
Um, Gaston is this overly exaggerated version of male perfection to contrast with the Beast, whereas Queen Whatever Wannabe isn't defined or trapped by anything related to her appearance. She can literally change it on a dime, and even when she's a monster sort of alien-looking thing, at first that freaks the other characters out, but it's never presented as being detrimental to what she's trying to accomplish. Like, she can still... You know, even though she freaks everyone out with the giant tentacle monster visual gag, the nice things that she does to all these characters genuinely makes them like her. And we find out that it's not because she's mind controlling them. It's just because she's doing nice things for them. Silence. I love silence. The sound of one bat flapping. The sound of silence. Good song. The sound of darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Another good song. By Garfunkel and Oates. The sound of rage. But but like a quiet rage. Not like me. Batman. For those of you who support us for $15 per month, you are all more awesome and more special and more important than maybe anyone else in the history of time. Except Batman. Big shout out to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Youngius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. You complete us. Man, I should pay my taxes like all the other billionaires. Thank you guys so, so much for coming on. This has been a glorious show. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, oh, one last thing. The romantic vampires will soon be hip again because eventually it's going to rotate <laughs> yes. back around to the time when girls like romantic vampires. And, yeah, can't wait for that time. So that's cool. Maybe, maybe on that occasion, boys won't so soundly and roundly utterly reject these vampires for not being what they consider vampires to be. Twilight still has some serious problems when it comes to rejection of mortality. Anyway. <laughs> uh, and a lot of other things too. Yeah. <laughs> but still, uh, the fact that the vampire sparkle is kind of the least of its problems. Anyway. Also you got Noel Fielding from the Mighty Boosh and the IT crowd voicing Balthazar the vampire. And actually, yeah, Richard Aowardi is the ice cream guy. It's kind of crazy how many voices in this are from some of our favorite TV. You know, Chris Pratt from Parks and Rec, Will Arnett from Arrested Development, Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Alison Brie from Community, Nick Offerman again from Parks and Rec, Charlie Day from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which we've never seen, Maya Rudolph from The Good Place, Ben Schwartz from Parks and Rec again, and Bruce Willis from Moonlighting. We never watched Moonlighting. Before we sign off, where can people find your stuff, Brendan? 
You can find me occasionally contributing to Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O, or you can follow me on Twitter at B-L-C Agnew, or you can read my uh, reviews, including one of the Lego Movie 2 at normannerd.blogspot.com. Caro and Debbie? All right. Uh, you can find us either at sequentially-yours.com, where we talk about comics and comic movies and um, media. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, we're both quite active. Karu is at MoonPanther22, and I am at Bastet8300. And feel free to, you know, have a chat. We we love to, to talk on Twitter and would, would love to hear from you or always share pet videos. I'm a sucker for anyone's pet or videos or or photos. And Toby. You can find uh, all of the articles I write up on theinquisitivej.tumblr, as long as Tumblr continues to be a thing. And you can also find everything I write on Twitter at tyoungius, spelt J-U-N-G-I-U-S. And I do film reviews and also a bunch of articles on a series you might be familiar with called New Century. I was going to say I have nothing to do with these uh, and Toby just writes them off his own back but some of them are really insightful and uh, if, you re- if you're into New Century check out Toby's work because uh, sometimes he'll read things that I'm like I'm so glad someone spotted that and sometimes I go ah <laughs> <laughs> death of the author and that's fine that is absolutely fine <laughs> We will be back next week with a show on the first three seasons of The Good Place. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School School of of Lego Lego is is out.
Thank you guys so so much. That's been lovely. Cool. It's been great. I, I'm brilliant I'm super, as always. <laughs> I'm super excited for the Good Place show because we just finished it oh, like, yeah. last week, and oh my god, I I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. It, it's mm. I, so many thoughts. If you thought we went philosophical on this one, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, so, I can imagine. Yeah. 